Hi there, I'm Dan, and welcome, or welcome back, maybe, to the Shaw Vineyard Church Podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take just a moment to subscribe in iTunes or in your podcast app of choice. That way, you can get every message from our church straight away on whatever device best suits you. You know, it's our hope that the message that you're about to hear in this episode would encourage you to take your best next step in your faith journey. So let's get straight into it. So as you know, uh, I said that uh, it's been said that I'm a teacher. Um, this was actually shared with me by a uh, former Year 13 Biblical study student I taught this year, and they shared it with me. So I felt quite validated actually them sending that to me. Um, I have a problem in that I I love a good meme. My wife can actually say I have a problem. Like I I if any time you want to see a meme, any time you want a good meme, I can happily hook you up with that. Um, also, a valid picture of me can confirm that this is definitely me also. Um, <laughs> so if you need any useless facts, please come and see me afterwards. Um, so yeah, I am speaking on the blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I thought I would go with your, your standard three-point sermon structure and focus on three particular points being what is meant by blessed, uh, what is meant by persecuted for the sake of righteousness, and what is meant by the kingdom of heaven. Um, so yeah, to start off with, I think it's important to look actually at blessed. And so I would also recommend, uh, I'm actually going to have the various scriptures in front of me while I'm actually preaching this. Um, so Matthew chapter 5. And so that you can actually kind of reference yourself as I'm going through, I recommend if you have your Bibles, just keep it open. You can flick, you can check anything yourself. I like to do that when I'm listening as well myself. Um, so the question perhaps to keep in mind when we actually think about blessed is what does Jesus mean when he says blessed? What is his understanding of the word? Um, with the wider Beatitudes, uh, it's actually a series of blessings to abide in these things, to embody these things. And the phrase, the cheesy little slogan I'm sticking with, I think that's going to be helpful for understanding what I want to share tonight is this idea of, um, I thought I had the slide there, uh, this idea of an invitation to transformation via incarnation. So I'll say that again. That's an invitation to transformation via incarnation. Um, let's reestablish some bit of the setting, though, of the Beatitudes. Um, so far, Jesus has been ordained in his ministry via his baptism in chapter 3 of Matthew. Uh, he's been tempted in the wilderness uh, and thus confirmed in his ministry, uh, perhaps even persecuted in the wilderness, you could say as well, accurately, I believe. Um, and he's been commissioned and starting to give a foretaste of what the kingdom of God actually looks like. That's in your chapter 4, where he's actually starting to perform miracles, offer freedom, offer relationship with God, uh, and actually calling of his first disciples. Then in language not unlike Moses, uh, he... He begins to, he meets with his disciples for this kind of second Sinai encounter. Vic talked about that earlier in uh, the series uh, with some of the other Beatitudes. Uh, it's, he's proceeding to actually meet with his people. He's proceeding to actually elaborate and clarify what the Torah's expectations are of people, of humanity in general. Um, Moses in Deuteronomy, uh, the final book of the Jewish Torah, seeks to clarify the tone and heart of God's covenant. 
and actually just kind of summarize. He's been with these people like say, let's say 40 years and he knows what these people are like. He knows that they're people who are, are not going to be able to follow the word of the Lord the covenant expectations of God's people uh, in their own strength. He actually talks about it in his final address in Deuteronomy before he's going to pass away. Uh, he talks about how uh, you guys are not going to be able to do this. You have these hearts of stone and you need to be given hearts of flesh. You need to be replaced in that so that you can actually fulfill the expectations of the Torah. Um, and I think that's something of the extension that Jesus is offering here, not a workspace theology, but a, a fleshy kind of heart that can actually respond to God's expectations uh, of the law, which is this whole Sermon on the Mount idea. Uh, so as we're reading Matthew, I want you just to imagine sitting at Jesus' feet as he begins to outline his, his ministry, his expectations for his disciples. And you can feel the shock register of these, these statements, these beatitudes, these crazy expectations. Um, I love talking to the beautiful Sandy Thompson in preparation of the sermon. Um, and the phrase he was kicking around, which I love this idea of, surely this is more than just Sunday school teaching, the beatitudes. Surely this is more than just a box of fluffy ducks. You know, this, these beatitudes, they're quite radical calls to action. They're quite radical living out kind of statements. It starts to sink in as you actually, you can imagine yourself sitting here hearing these words for yourself that actually this, we've heard this before, this idea of Jesus being the servant king, that these are his names that he's actually giving himself. We'll talk about that in a little bit. And to receive the kingdom, the earth, peace, justification, the invitation is be like me, be like me, be like Christ. This is partially, partially, what Jesus meant by being blessed. So uh, this beatitude, again, it's an invitation to transformation by incarnation. Um, this quote, which is a little hard to read from there, I'll just read out. More than just a guide for conduct, it is, first of all, a profound, unexpected, and surprising new revelation of the very mystery of God. A first reading makes it clear that the eight Beatitudes in St. Matthew are, above all, a portrait of Jesus himself. The Beatitudes are not only a map for Christian life, but are the secret to Jesus' heart itself. Um, so we have this moment where Jesus is a new, brand new rabbi. He has his disciples. And bearing in mind, his disciples are, you know, they're the poor, they're men and women, they're children, they're the outcasts, the fringe of society. And an interesting point is sinners in the contemporary definition of the day would mean anyone who couldn't fully live out, fulfill the expectations of the Torah. So they, contemporarily, anyone who couldn't actually live up to those expectations, they'd say that was a sinner. And Jesus is inviting these people to be his disciples. So he's starting to actually unpack his expectations around what it means to live the blessed life, to live the abundant life. Um, how do different people receive this? So some people identify with these Beatitudes and feel reassured, saying, oh, I'm in there, awesome. And Jesus both reassures and reiterates to those freaking out about, like, is he just getting rid of all, like, God's expectations around the Torah? And to those relaxing a little too much, it's, oh, he's getting rid of God's, all, all God's expectations around the Torah, fantastic. Um, he says, following on in chapter 5, I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. And he goes on to say, uh, you have heard it said, but I say to you. That phrase is repeated a lot through chapters 5, 6, and 7. This idea of you hear, 
that this was said by the Pharisees, but I'm clarifying, I'm elaborating, this is God's expectations on this. And further still, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom. So again, this is God on the hills of Galilee, not distant as on Sinai, uh, making clear his expectations to us about the abundant life. So then he spends the next three chapters expounding on the spirit-filled life and how this is the kingdom of heaven. Like all throughout the, in the Beatitudes in the following chapters, there's these repeating echoes of actually, uh, blessed are the meek, looks like this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, looks like this. It's touched on again and again. Um, some scholars suggest that the hinge between the Old and New Testaments is the advent of the nativity, or Christ baptism, or the crucifixion. The actual connecting part, which actually we have the transition in the New Testament. But uh, some others believe, and I think I'm inclined to agree, um, that this very passage is the beginning of it all, where the kingdom is declared and unveiled in this passage, declaratively and significantly. Um, Without God, lived as purely as a set of ethical codes, these Beatitudes, it's impossible we can do it. But the whole point of this invitation is that the kingdom is becoming like Christ. Uh, Jacques Philippe, who I quoted before, also has said that this sermon was the first Trinitarian statement of God about himself, with events beforehand leading to the culmination of Christ saying, blessed is, blessed is, blessed is, blessed is. Essentially, I am these things. I am poor in spirit. I am meek. I am uh, hungry and thirsty for righteousness. Um, The Greek makairos means supremely blessed, fortunate, well-off, Blessed, happy. Uh, blessed colloquially at the time meant, uh, means happy, but contextually also brought close to God in the presence of God, to be in the presence of God. Um, blessed can be met in these moments where you are consciously aware of God's goodness and favor and presence in all the myriads of ways he looks after us. Um, and, but often also in moments of poignance and significance even despite the circumstances. Um, here's a quote I just thought was a little bit worthwhile, and it kind of represents this idea of what I'm talking about. But um, I felt this presence of God in the birth of my daughter. Like, I remember talking to Vic a month beforehand, and how he described the spiritual experience of love, like, multiplied exponentially when you become a father, not only for your child, but also for your wife and and for everyone, by extension. Um, It was in that moment I was aware, there she is, by the way, also, (laughs) <laughs> I was in that moment, I was aware of God's blessing and his good graces. Essentially, blessing is that intimacy and connection with God, God's presence with us, enabling us to do these things. Being a first-time parent is, like, tough in many respects. <laughs> but who said that joy was only ever found in comfort? I am not persecuted having my child. <laughs> I should probably qualify that. But uh, I believe understanding... I believe that in understanding difficulties, we can actually be blessed is a worldview perspective that needs to be rediscovered in Western Christianity. The idea as the idea that blessing only comes without pain is not a biblical idea. We have these statements of Jesus throughout the Gospel of John where he talks about the I am statements. I am this, I am this, I am this. Um... And this is almost essentially what we see in the Beatitudes here, where Jesus is actually saying, these are my names. These names of God built upon uh, God is is poor. God is poor in spirit, mourning, he's meek. And the baptism and temptation following commencement showed us that he could not have done these things 
in his power. He could have done these things in his power, sorry, but he chose not to. Um, he chose rather to act in the power and by the leading of the Holy Spirit. His will surrendered in obedience, knowing God's expectations of him. Thus, the human Christ was transformed. Uh, so it's the relationship, it's that invitation to be transformed via the knowing of God. And that's the model to us, what he actually would ask us to do also. Notice throughout the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 to 7, there's just this familiarity with the Father, just all the time. It's just assumed, like, you know, you're praying to your Father in heaven. Um, it's not unpacked or elaborated, it's just touched upon at relevant times, like it's a fundamental, normal reality of life. And bear in mind, Jews at the time would probably have felt quite unusual and a little bit uncomfortable about this idea, that actually God was being called Father, so intimate, so close. It was Jesus who really pioneered this idea of God as Father. Um... The presence and intimacy of God is experienced. This is the essence of what blessing is. And he's telling us that if we want that, we want that closeness with God, we have to be where he is and do what he does. The Beatitudes are a product of a life lived with the spirit of God's transformation. Um, said another way, by the same author as quoted before, Beatitudes are both fruits of the Holy Spirit and conditions for receiving the spirit. Um, so that's just uh, skipping ahead there. But what about this next idea of persecution? Now, it should be noted that Jesus immediately says, uh, immediately says, blessed are you when you are persecuted for my name's sake and to rejoice. The persecution is to be understood synonymously and contextually, even within the passage, as suffering on Christ's behalf. However, the semantics are important as well. Like in this passage, we are not the sinners, we are the victims, and yet still blessed in the state of persecution. So when we think of persecution, we might look at a map like this, which is showing cases of extreme persecution, moderate persecution, high persecution. Um, when we think persecution and we think Christian persecution, we might think the global situation for our Christian brothers and sisters in China, in South America, Africa, Middle East, suffering, martyrdom. We might think to Hebrews 11, which talks about the champions and the heroes of the faith, um, and then goes on to actually, after Hebrews chapter 11, say in Hebrews 12, uh, endure suffering as God's discipline because you're being confirmed as sons and daughters of God. Not unlike the statement here in the Beatitude. Come back to that idea, though. Um, but I don't think we should dismiss ourselves as not the intended audience of our Lord's Beatitudes. For if we identify with meek or poor in spirit or uh, any of the blesseds, then there is space for us here. And persecution takes many forms, and our enemy is very insidious. But neither do I presume to what difficult circumstances are in each and everyone's testimony of faith. You might have had some very trying circumstances. Regarding suffering, uh, one of the standard arguments for atheism is that uh, from the Greek philosopher Epicurus, been popularized, that idea of how can a good, all-powerful God, how can he allow suffering? Apologist William Lane Craig uh, advances the idea that such realities exist to allow for the maximal amount of good in tandem with allowing for the freedom of volition and choice. Much of suffering and pain is due to the sin we endure in others and in ourselves and in a world where the possibility of other than God's will be done exists. And like I said, at this point, I kind of find like the idea of, say, for example, Paul, who's saying, 
one of the New Testament uh, passages, uh, one of the letters, he says, I have learnt the secret of contentment in all circumstances. Bear in mind, in that particular address, he's just listed all the things he's endured and suffered. Um, or in John, uh, the John's Gospel, uh, chapters 14 to 17, it's Jesus' last supper with his disciples, and he's explaining like the way to actually live the blessed life is to uh, be in connection with me, abide in the vine. Uh, I am the source, I am the life that gives you the strength to do all this. And then immediately follows with, by the way, in this life you will know trouble. Like immediately afterwards. Um, I think then we're starting to see this idea that persecution doesn't just have to be external, it can also be internal. A really fundamental thing to understand. The Sermon on the Mount is a window for this. Are the temptations of lust, wealth, worry, cause for persecution, internal or external? Are we being persecuted by our inadequate responses to these temptations, perhaps? Like, have a think about why Jesus talks about anger, lust, money. Immediately after this bit, is anger a persecution? Why? Is chasing after our anger bringing us closer to God? Is lust a persecution? Is money a persecution? Are we being persecuted by our inadequate responses to these temptations? But also, there's this other understanding or rendering of persecution. Hopefully this is going to work for me. Also meaning passion. Um, in a traditional rendering of the word persecution, you could actually be said to actually say, I'll actually go on to this next slide. I quite like what our Sandy said here. Um, persecution can be seen as an activity intended to separate you from God. We translated it as stuff done by others to make me recant. But what value is a forced confession? I'm going to try not to butcher the Greek here. Dioko can also mean follow, chase, hunt, as in pursuing your dreams of dikaiosine, <laughs> rightness with God. So you would persecute, in a traditional sense, a hobby. You would run swiftly in order to catch, to press on, to run as a race, to pursue a goal. Persistent annoyance or harassment. You're harassing until you achieve this result. Um, thinking about it that way, the Beatitude kind of takes on a different light. Blessed are those who resist any temptation which would move them away from God. See, this is not like a Sunday school kind of thing. We often first encounter the, the Beatitudes within a Sunday school context. And like it can kind of lose the weight and the heaviness, the heavy hittingness of the Beatitudes. But Jesus also says, enter the kingdom as a little child. The only thing a seven-year-old can bring is trust in a person. Trust in the person that what they're saying is truthful. The Sunday school can hear these Beatitudes and understand them because they trust the character of the person saying these things. We can trust the person who said these things, not only because he talked the talk, but he also walked the walk. What purposes could God be working through our suffering? Do we trust the person who also says he works all things together for our good? Like if our suffering meant thousands came to Christ, would it be worth it? Could you do it? What about just one person? Could we do it? Would we do it? 
Again, it's this idea, it's an invitation to transformation via incarnation. I promise if you take nothing else away from tonight, you'll be like, oh yeah, I remember that. <laughs> um, we have to understand again this invitation. Um, Christ himself being God was persecuted. He didn't just look at our humanity and the intimacy of pain and sign off saying, hey, good luck with that, all the best. No, he actually said, rather, I'm going to embrace humanity myself, knowing all that he would endure as a part of it, and said of persecution, it is to be expected, such as the world, rejoice. And again, the Beatitudes don't shy away from these harsh realities of life. Rather, blessing, meaning, purpose in human existence is experienced in the Beatitudes with God and not in spite of them. Can you imagine being the son of God himself and having to argue with people about the nature of God when you are him in the flesh? Can you imagine being sentenced to death by such people just to be silenced? Acknowledging this, what did Jesus live for? We know what he dies for, like that's often popularized and we know that quite well theologically, but what did he live for? It's not unlike the story of my father. Um, my father, my stepfather I should say, but the man who practically raised me, passed away last year uh, around about this time of leukemia. Uh, and quite a significant part of his testimony was that he had battled with uh, prostate cancer about 2012-2013. During that season really struggled, really wrestled with this idea of internal persecution. Like, do I why God, why has this happened, why has this happened to me in the way that it has. But by the time actually this came around to his leukemia, and <laughs> I'm still struggling with this theologically, and we had a number of discussions about this, but I remember actually him saying on any number of occasions that actually, you know, Jared, I see my cancer as a gift from God. And I'm like, you, you're going to need to qualify that for me, Dad, because I'm not understanding that. He said, because that cancer gives me access to a range of experiences or to a range of people that I would have never otherwise had access to, never would have had actually possibility to. And I'm able to be Christ to those people and to those circumstances and those situations. I have to die of something. We all have to die of something. This is something I can do to actually give glory to my Savior. And so he could have gone with the internal persecution saying, why God, why me? But instead he actually chose to say, like, how in the space of persecution, the thing that would lead me away from actually serving God, how can I actually serve God even in that? I also am reminded of uh, the idea of Psalm 23 and the Lord is my shepherd. We all know that psalm reasonably well. But I love just this throwaway verse which kind of like capitalizes on this idea he makes a table for me in the presence of my enemies if anyone knew what it meant to be persecuted and persecuted in the way of pursuit it was king david the guy who wrote the psalm and he understood this idea of actually persecution meaning uh basically i am in the right i am the innocent here i haven't done anything wrong and yet he actually understood that you will be comforted and brought into the presence of God through persecution. This harkens back to this first idea in the first part of the sermon, talking about what it means to be blessed, to come into the presence of God, even through this. So we come to this final point, this idea of, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All the Beatitudes together promise the blessing of the kingdom of heaven. Hence the opening, uh, 
which you can see. The poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom. And hence the tail end. Blessed are the persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All of these together are kingdom living. These embodied realities are part and parcel of the life lived with God as sovereign, as king in our lives, the king of that kingdom. And I think this is no more beautifully recognized, best represented, best embodied than on the cross. And we have this beautiful coincidence of great good in the midst of great tragedy. These were the Beatitudes' truest realizations in the moment of the crucifixion, in the life of Jesus. And yet this is where the most blessing was poured out. Now, if anyone was more undeserving of what actually happened to him, it was God himself, deicide, like God sacrificing himself on behalf of people who were his enemies on our behalf. And yet from that, we are still receiving the benefits and the blessing of actually that sacrifice given. He himself was resurrected, glorified, ascended through that process, through the moment of the greatest persecution he could have experienced. He received the greatest blessing imaginable. The cross is also the balance of forgiveness and justice. God's love fully reigning in our lives, worked out through us, is the kingdom of heaven, or part of. The greatest example of this beatitude embodied, again, tragedy and triumph, paradoxically wrapped up together. And I think that is a lot of the Beatitudes. They're paradoxes. They don't make sense in the natural, but in the relationship with God and actually in the connection with God. Yeah, I get that. I understand that. That makes sense. Without it doesn't. Like I'm reminded of this uh, idea throughout um, the Old Testament. It recurs a couple of times. uh, Once in Psalm 18.33 and once in Habakkuk 3 verse 19, I think was the references I saw. This idea of um, hinds feet on high places. And it's this idea that actually goats have this amazing ability to scale great heights because they have these kind of feet that are so shaped that they can actually move through. Now, in both the references that I mentioned, how hinds feet are mentioned, it's this idea of they can navigate these impossibly difficult set of circumstances and terrain because they have the means, they have the equipment, they have the design to actually enable themselves to do it, to actually navigate it. And I feel like that's an entry into actually God saying through that psalmist and through that prophet, God doesn't necessarily promise to remove us from the difficult circumstances of the persecution, but he does promise to give us the equipment to be able to handle it. He does promise to give us the means to be able to actually make our way through that. The father heart is implied all throughout this passage. Like, Jesus calls us children throughout this passage. Father is implied almost as a passing reference. And this is an invitation, these beatitudes, this beatitude, is an invitation into that family, an extension of the baptism, temptation, commencement of ministry is also an extension of Christ's identity to us as a son and daughter. So again, how does this beatitude display the kingdom? How do we be like God and his children, bearing up persecution as he himself would? I quite like the stuff, um, I don't know if you've heard this channel, um, The Bible Project, They do this this great material in our understanding what is kingdom and what is under. Just the whole Bible. They've done some amazing stuff. But they have this great little video on heaven and earth, which actually shows this idea of, you can kind of see on there, this idea of um, heaven being separate and earth being separate. And heaven is the place where it's God's presence. It's his glory. It's his justice. It's beauty. And the place of earth uh, in the natural 
is sin and justice and ugliness, but the kingdom of heaven is where that, that Venn diagram overlaps. It's where we actually see that coincidence of both together. Christ models this himself. To do kingdom living, we have to be walking, willing to walk in the pain of this world, endure its suffering and pain, and yet show the hope of God alive in us. It is the kingdom now, but not yet. Kingdom now, there is healing and miracles, maybe even in our midst. Uh, kingdom not yet, there is still pain and death. Kingdom now, there is the presence of God felt and experienced. Kingdom not yet, there is an absence and loneliness of God felt in many places by many people. Kingdom now, we experience victory over sin and temptation. Kingdom not yet, as Christians, we still grapple and wrestle with sin, even though we are saved. These aren't just eschatological blessings, but realized now but not yet aspects of these Beatitudes altogether. What does it mean to understand this about our God? What does it mean for this to be our response? See, the, the Hebraic understanding of shalom, peace, restitution, that comes along from this global idea of peace everywhere in all people, in all circumstances, um, all from the same things. But it's not, it's not just being punished when you do bad things and being rewarded when you do good things. Rather, it's the peace to actually understand and accept what has happened. This Hebrew worldview ex expresses and accepts the messiness of life, accepts peace with what has happened. Um, and the thing I think I want to close with is something just actually more capitalized than what I'm actually talking about. But the thing I think I want to close with uh, is a little bit of this anecdote with my uh, mum and dad. One example I ponder often of kingdom now but not yet and like persecution, both internal and external, uh, is my family's home life before our second broken home. My mother and my stepdad, for many years of marriage, had this beautiful dynamic of hospitality. Mum and dad were essentially elders in our church, dad formerly, mum without the title, and they spiritually refined one another, and our home was one where it was always hospitable, open, and the conversations around the gospel and around theology were just like so natural. So many people would come to our house and that would just be kind of the rhythm of how we'd do things. Even given, given some of the brokenness in our family and our dysfunctionality, during my years as a teen, I saw some of this stuff work through by God and some of the healing work through in those circumstances. This was kingdom now. The spirit working in our midst. But there was baggage and brokenness that both parents uh, brought into their, their covenant with one another. And this eventually came to head in conflict and longer after that separation. And before Dad passed from cancer, every so often I would pray so passionately that, you know, they could reconcile. If they could just work it out, they could just sort it out, you know, like, you know, come on, guys. Like, it's, it's, it's simpler than we think, right? That was the hope, anyway. Um, and especially as Dad got sick and I became evident, it became evident that he wouldn't live much longer. But they never did reconcile. And I came to a place of giving it to God and saying, not in this world but the next. And I'm okay with that because this is kingdom not yet. This place is not our final home. This is not our final resting place. I guess it's that on that, this last idea that I want to close with. Um, what's mentioned in Revelation, there's that verse which talks about in uh, chapter 6 where it talks about the saints who have actually endured bloodshed for the sake of the gospel, endured persecution by extension. And they're crying out to God and they're saying, how much longer, how much longer, like how much longer will we have to endure for the sake of the gospel? And he 
comforts them in that instance. Like Christ, God, by extension, comforts and reassures. And we see the culmination right at the end of Revelation, where actually he says, or the prophet, I should say, says, of what God has done, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. So I think the, the thing I want to leave you with is this idea that even in the context of persecution, you can experience that blessing of the presence of God. In fact, Christ models that to us. He shows us that. And I think it's on that note that I want to encourage you that actually, if you want to be about the stuff that God's doing in this world, before kingdom finally, finally realized, then identify with these beatitudes. Come to this place where you're actually saying, you know, okay, God, I want to be doing what you're doing, about what you're about, where you are. I'm excited for that. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. And if you're in the Forest Hill or the Bays area of Auckland's North Shore, we would so love to have you at our next service this Sunday. You can get details on service times and more info on our kids and student environments by visiting svc.org.nz. That's svc.org.nz. Hope you have a great day and we'll see you next time here on the podcast.